This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. I actually uh, cut myself in the kitchen just moments ago. I was uh, reaching for a water glass, tipped it over, and uh, of course it went uh, smashing uh, down on the on the, uh, the kitchen counter, and I was sort of grabbing for it to, uh, to try and attempt to, to, to prevent it from breaking, and I actually stabbed my hand with a shard of glass, and I've got a... Uh, a uh, Kleenex in my uh, my left hand that I'm holding very tightly, and I am bleeding like a, a stuck pig. Like I'm, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing this conspiracy show, and now of course my mind is racing. I think, am I being offered up as some blood sacrifice to the Illuminati here on live radio? I don't know. But uh, as soon as I get a a, a break, uh, a commercial break, I'm going to uh, see if I can round up a band aid. Do we have any? Is there an emergency kit in this uh, building, Dan? There is. He's nodding. Do you know where I would find a Band-Aid in this building? He's giving me the thumbs up, which is more than I can do with my, uh, oh, I'm feeling faint from loss of blood. Just kidding. It's not that bad, but uh, that is kind of smart. All right. We have a, uh, a, a, a very fascinating show. We are fast approaching the 52nd anniversary of what uh, Don McLean uh, said in his immortal song, The Day the Music Died. Uh, we, uh, we're going to sp- speak with uh, rock and roll investigator R. Gary Patterson about the death, deaths of uh, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. And, of course, it was uh, Feb 3rd, 1959, and uh, they had just uh, finished playing a concert at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, and uh, their plane went down not long after takeoff. Of course, all three dead. And uh, a lot of interesting 
mysteries, coincidences, rumors, and legends surrounding that death. So we'll get into that with our Gary Patterson coming up in about a half an hour, and uh, we'll also open up the phone lines because uh, Gary can talk about a lot of uh, a lot of rock and roll legends and uh, tales from the grave and uh, interesting. Uh, the the back story of uh, some of the deaths of uh, uh, famous rock and rollers. So we'll get into that, as I say. Uh, first off, though, we are living in perilous times. Uh, the Middle East just seems, again, on the precipice with uh, what's going on in Egypt, of course. When you get a country of about roughly 100 million people uh, teetering on the brink of chaos, uh, that gives us all grave uh, a pause for grave concern. And, um, of course, we're hoping for the, for the best possible outcome, but it's a very tense time. And so what better time uh, than to check in with our, uh, our friend, the uh, editor and publisher of uh, World Affairs Brief, Joel Skousen, of course, uh, can take us backstage in the global theater and we'll find out what's really going on uh, behind the scenes. Hey, Joel, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you. I'm very fine, Richard. It's always good to be with you. We should mention that uh, World Affairs Brief is a, a weekly news analysis service dedicated to providing an understanding of the hidden agendas behind the actions of world leaders and other powerful individuals who influence government from behind the scenes. And Joel, you can tell us how to subscribe to that uh, a little bit later. Uh, let's talk about the big story in the news, of course, and that is the, uh, uh, the, the rioting, rampaging, looting in Egypt. Uh, this uh, looks, it's rather frightening when a, a country this size uh, and, and this important to the balance of power in the Middle East and so forth, seeming to be on the brink. Uh, what do you make of uh, what's going on in Egypt right now, Joel? Well, first of all, the, the tyranny of this government, it's essentially a, a single party state under Hosni Mubarak, has been going on for decades. And the U.S. has done nothing about it except throw $3 billion of aid uh, a year at this country, kind of a quid pro quo to, to balance out uh, the payments to Israel as if we are uh, helping out Israel by, uh, you know, giving money to, uh, to this of all Arab states, which is a, a one-party state. So the, the kinds of political unrest has been brewing for many years, but this has been an absolute police state of a crackdown. This is... Similar, similarly suspicious to the sudden rise of the riots in Leipzig, Germany, that led to the what I call the phony collapse of the Soviet Union. We now know that that Eric Honecker, uh, on his deathbed in Chile, admitted that Moscow had telephoned him and told him to allow the riots to go forth. And I think something similar is happening here. Uh, Mubarak is ill. Whoever is running the show here, I think that there is either uh, or both a provocation going on, insider, um, third party, that means other countries, whether the U.S. or, the, or, or Russia or others, that uh, fed uh, uh, information as well as money to the opposition. And then someone in government allowed them to go ahead and riot without cracking down on them, because this has never been allowed to occur. In other words, this is one of those too-good-to-be-true stories, that uh, how is it that a country that has had an ironclad police state that arrests any opposition leader that starts to uh, go out and, and do social uh, unrest or dissident work, and then all of a sudden we're allowed to, allowing it to spread throughout the country? Well, it is interesting uh, because, uh, like the situation 
uh, in uh, in East Germany just prior to the, um, uh, the, the the wall coming down. You had sort of widespread uh, demonstrations across uh, Eastern Europe and and in the Middle East at the same time. Uh, you had uh, rioting in Jordan and also, of course, uh, the recent situation in Tunisia where their uh, their president had to to flee. Uh, is there a connection between Jordan, Tunisia, and Egypt, Joel? No, I, I don't think there's a connection between t- Tunisia. This is one of the rotating states within the African Union that are filled with corrupt leaders, and it's only a matter of time before uh, there is a movement to overthrow them. Now, that said, none of those overthrows ever occur without external interference and feeding of money and material to them. Uh, so somebody's there, and I haven't been able to figure out, I've been out of the country for a week, um, who was behind that, and I don't know who was behind what's going on in, in Egypt, but let me paint a couple of scenarios, possibly. Remember that we've had this situation where Egypt has appeared to be the moderate Arab state, as well as Jordan, by the way. Um, and it's very interesting that both of these are being destabilized at this time. I don't believe, in fact, that Egypt was a moderate Arab state. Remember that Egypt was constantly supplying or allowing its side of the border on Gaza to be the tunnel entrance point and the infiltration point for tons of material, including weapons and rockets that went over into the Gaza Strip. So clearly Egypt is not playing uh, the moderate role in reality. Uh, And the U.S. should have, of course, been cutting off aid a long time ago. The U.S. is complaining or, or making it appear, calling for moderation uh, and for a peaceful uh, settlement, settlement here. But um, Barack Obama may or may not know what's going on behind the scene. What I suspect, Richard, is that because Israel is extremely worried right now that the Arabs are getting ready to launch what we geopolitical analysts have been watching for many years, that is, the fact that you have thousands of missiles ringing Israel, and Israel has, you know, the most formidable anti-ballistic missile system there is. But even so, it cannot handle more than about 80 missiles coming in at any one time, and only, you know, maybe three times, and then it's done. With 3,000 missiles coming in in barrages, even Israel has to admit that they cannot protect the civilians. They will only protect the military. So I think they're looking, frankly, to pare down the odds, and I think that's why someone, either the U.S. or Israel or one of their uh, um, underling states, is undermining uh, Egypt right now, hoping to get a, a change in regime that will destabilize at least Egypt, which has a formidable military uh, power from participating in the coming war. This is essential, because Israel is intending still to attack Iran. That will unleash the larger Middle East war between Syria, Lebanon, um, and Egypt against Israel. And if you eliminate Egypt out of that category by destabilizing it, Israel probably hopes to have a better chance of surviving this. Joel Skousen is with us, the editor and publisher of The World Affairs a Brief. Joel, you mentioned Iran. My concern would be that uh, uh, could we have another Iran-type situation uh, in Egypt, again, we have uh, the U.S. Uh, ostensibly uh, backing a very unpopular uh, a president uh, who rules that country with an iron fist. 
uh, and uh, of course uh, pumps, as you said, about $3 billion annually into what is primarily military uh, aid and propping up their their secret police, which uh, it's no secret they use uh, 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 torture. Uh, is it possible that this could, it, let's assume it is uh, the U.S. Uh, trying to undermine Mubarak and hoping that they can get someone else in there. Uh, is it possible, though, that this could backfire and they could end up with another Iranian revolution this time in Egypt? It is possible. Uh, we could get someone worse in there. Uh, and, you know, when you look at the perspective from the globalists, the globalists appear to be helping Israel, but in fact they want global conflict, and they want Israel to be threatened. Ultimately, the end game plan is to have Israel be attacked with such might around the world that they have to call on international troops to come in and save them. And once you have international troops coming in in a so-called peacekeeping mission, it's like Kosovo, you know, you really never get your independence. Uh, you know, you're always under supervision even though they claim that Kosovo now has its independence, it can't do anything without this international commission approving it. So that may well be um, what can happen. I think the globalists, in fact, can, uh, can benefit either way, uh, whether they get a more stable regime and allow Israel to pick and uh, take down uh, Syria and Lebanon in this without having to deal with Egypt uh, might be the preferable way. But I can see the same thing, having an overwhelming uh, attack on Israel in retaliation for its attack on Iran, and then having the UN being called upon to come to the rescue with the commensurate, you know, division of um, Jerusalem again, uh, giving Vatican control over the religious holy sites and uh, and making it an international protectorate. That's very much within the globalist uh, scope and plans. All right, Joe, hold on. We'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll uh, talk about uh, uh, Google being accused of cozying up to the uh, uh, President Barack Obama's administration. We'll also uh, talk about the latest news, I guess, on the birther front, and that is uh, a Hawaii official who now swears uh, that uh, there is no Obama birth certificate. We'll talk about fluoride and uh, time permitting a Christian homeschooling family that's been torn apart by a, an agency in New Jersey. All that coming up with the editor-publisher of Joel Skousen from World Affairs Brief here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Just a reminder, rock and roll investigator R. Gary Patterson will uh, join me at the uh, bottom of the hour, 11.30 p.m. Eastern, to talk about uh, the death of Buddy Holly, that anniversary fast approaching February 3rd, 1959, will uh, mark the 52nd anniversary of uh, what people call the day the music died. But a lot of interesting coincidences and uh, rumors and legends uh, to this day uh, swirling around uh, that, uh, that plane crash uh, that took the lives of, of course, Buddy Holly, one of the great pioneers of rock and roll, the most influential, I would argue, uh, of any, probably even more than Elvis. Uh, of course, it also took the life of uh, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper. And not too, rec- uh, not too long ago, actually, uh, the Big Bopper's son had his father's body exhumed, and we'll tell you why, 
uh, a little bit later. Right now, Joel Skousen stays with us, the editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief. Joel, before we get to uh, Hawaii and other stories, how do people subscribe to the newsletter? They can go to my website, worldaffairsbrief.com. That's written as one word, worldaffairsbrief.com. And uh, you can, they can uh, get a free sample copy of after reading the synopsis of the current brief, just by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. The modest subscription price of only $48 for the entire year, weekly World Affairs Brief in your uh, inbox. And I might say, Richard, perhaps uh, due to your show, I have an increasing number of Canadian subscribers, a, a very large lot, in fact. Oh, that's terrific. Well, uh, Joel, uh, as I've said many times, this is particularly when we're into these uh, perilous times uh, and, and people are looking elsewhere outside of the, the mass uh, media for, for information. They're not satisfied with what they're getting from the daily newspapers and so forth. Uh, the World Affairs Brief uh, is becoming more and more important every single day. Uh, witness what's going on in the Middle East right now and, and the kind of insight that the World Affairs brief brings is just invaluable. So it's a bargain at any cost. Uh, let's talk about, uh, well, we talked about, uh, you know, alternative uh, sources of information and the internet, but but Google has uh, come under fire recently from a consumer watchdog uh, accused of cozying up with uh, the Barack Obama's uh, administration. What's that all about? Well, it really starts clear back in the incipient uh, emergence of Google. Uh, I kept wondering, you know, how has this uh, massive search engine site come out and free of charge, provide all this information that must have tremendous servers, et cetera, for nothing. It's just free, and that's before they had any advertising that they were driving. Well, it became admitted that they were, in fact, they got seed money from the CIA. That means from its very inception, Google had a relationship with government. Uh, and it's very obvious from Google's uh, performance, uh, in keeping all Internet records about every search that you do, about every email that you put on, on Google. Of course, it's free, and now you have Google Chat. All of these things are being recorded when you use uh, anything related to Google. Now, the, the NSA, frankly, is reporting, uh, trying to get recording of everything within the Internet, and that's why they have required all ISPs or Internet service providers to have the equipment that allows them to tap into any conversation. Uh, I think that they're wiretapping everything, frankly, uh, computer analyzing it. That's why this latest revelation about the relationship between the NSA, National Security Agency, and Google doesn't surprise me one bit. I mean, even look at the roving... Uh, I mean, think of the, uh, the money, Richard, that it takes to have vehicles all over the world driving down every street and digitally photographing the front of every building and coordinating that with GPS coordinates. I mean, what a boon to government that yeah. will have access to all of that. I find that disturbing. Uh, I don't want my house, a street view of my house, available uh, you know, to anyone around the world via the Internet. I, I just find that an incredible encroachment on, on privacy. So what's behind yeah. this Google Earth? Are they well, tracking us? I think that the, you know, the money that has gone into the development of all these things is far beyond the wealth of Google. Now, they have made a lot of money in advertising. But, you know, when they were found out to have been recording and trapping um, Internet Wi-Fi addresses and access codes uh, as they go around and take these pictures, and then they claimed it was an accident. I mean, anybody in the computer software business knows that you have to program. That doesn't happen automatically. 
And even if you were to, you know, open your laptop and it shows, for example, a, a Wi-Fi uh, that's unsecured, and it's going to give you that. I mean, you have to have a program that automatically logs on to that and then goes and searches through the computer and gets what information. That is sophisticated stuff that was done on purpose. And I think we're looking at Google as an extension of the surveillance society of government. Uh, and to say nothing of the fact that uh, Google recently uh, accused, of course, of, of cozying up with the regime in communist China. That's right. They made their peace there and uh, had a, a major compromise. All right. Uh, let's uh, talk about uh, the latest in this never-ending story regarding, well, it's, uh, it's about the whole birther movement, uh, the, uh, the idea that Barack Obama is not eligible to be president because he's not a natural-born U.S. citizen. And uh, we've sort of been back and forth in terms of, uh, uh, is there a long-form birth certificate actually uh, available? Is, uh, can it be located in his uh, supposed uh, birth state of Hawaii? And then we had this um, election official uh, who came uh, forward and has now swi- sworn out an affidavit um, that uh, we're talking about Tim Adams. Uh, and he's swearing that there is no birth certificate uh, for Barack Obama in the state of Hawaii. Well, that's absolutely true, and the reason there can't be one is because he wasn't born in any hospital there. The two hospitals that his campaign claimed, or various relatives, there were, there's conflicting stories there. One is Kapi'olani Women's Center, where she was supposed to have given birth. Absolutely no record of her ever being there, or Barack Obama and the other hospital there in Honolulu. There's no record there uh, whatsoever. So you're not going to get a long-form birth certificate. And what the campaign put out, of course, was a certification of live birth. Now, I happen to know a lot about this because I had a daughter born in Hawaii when I lived there in the military. And she was born at home. And so when we went to register her birth, all we did was sign a certification of live birth asserting that she was born, and we were the only witnesses. No doctor required, and that's exactly what Obama's mother did. No proof required. And so when people keep saying, you know, show us the birth certificate, uh, there's not going to be a long-form birth certificate. In fact, when Governor Neil Abercrombie, who you know is obviously biased towards Barack Obama, said, I'm going to go out and prove once and for all that this stuff is there, and he came back and said, yes, the paperwork is there, well, if the paperwork is there, I mean, there is no paperwork for a certification of live birth. And if there is paperwork for a birth certificate, then, in fact, there are going to be hospital records. But they aren't showing that. And he wouldn't even state exactly what it was. And now, of course, uh, David has come out and said that there is no such thing, and I think that's true. He was born in Kenya, and there has been another birth certificate uh, come out of Kenya, which does look to be legitimate. Now, the first one was a forgery, and this is a typical strategy of those that have conspired within government to protect the Barack Obama, is they create a forgery about something that is true, and then when they reveal that it's a forgery, the, the public is expected to then discredit the substance as well as the fact that it was a forgery. Because, and that's, that's been done two or three times. It's a very effective technique. When they purposely go out to forge something about the substance of something that is true to get them both discredited. Now, the, the election official that uh, came forward, Tim Adams, and swore out this affidavit, uh, he was a senior elections clerk back in 2008. Now, 
how would he, how would an elections clerk have knowledge that no birth certificate exists? Well, he certainly made a, he, he said he made a search, and, he, and it wasn't there. And he searched the whole record base. Now, he got in trouble for that, of course. Um, you know, and uh, they don't like that. That's why they're covering for this. But I don't believe there's anything in the database. I think they've falsified it. If there's any paperwork that the governor's referring to, it's probably the newspaper notice about the vote that they have a copy of. Uh, and they probably got the copy in the records just because of this controversy. But once again, a parent puts that in that is not done by government, the newspaper notice of the birth that's done by the parents. And I think there was a conspiracy of the mother to get citizenship for her son, and then unwisely lost it anyway by taking the son to Indonesia and making him a citizen there, which he had to be to attend school. And that's why Obama went to school on an Indonesian passport as a foreign student. So they've really messed it up, and that's why they had to seal all the school records to keep the public from knowing about that. Uh, Joel, and it, it just uh, uh, goes to show you uh, that, um, th- this is my line of uh, thinking anyway, that if you have a, uh, a cabal uh, that can uh, assassinate a president, uh, referring to Kennedy, of course, and that same cabal or remnants of it still exists today. They can put anybody in the White House that they want to, and and there's you know they could even if there wasn't a long form birth certificate, I'm sure they could produce one. They could forge one. Uh, they can put. They can do the anything. Trouble is, you'd have to forge a doctor's certificate, a uh, doctor's name, and you'd have to find a dead doctor that couldn't be traced, and and uh, they're still alive. The ones that operated at those hospitals. That's why it's so difficult to do that. Right. Right. I guess my point is that uh, they can do. I say they. This uh, this uh, cabal. They can do anything they want. They can, in plain sight, practically, because they they are getting away with it, aren't they? Well, I mean, look at Ron Emanuel. Uh, you know, he clearly isn't qualified to run as mayor. He has not lived there continuously for the previous year, and yet the Supreme Court of Illinois just turned it over without any basis in law whatsoever. Joel Skousen, the editor, publisher of World Affairs uh, Brief. Uh, let's uh, switch gears and talk about uh, fluoride. A cousin of mine up in, uh, in Waterloo, Ontario, uh, was part of a campaign. They just uh, held sort of a, a referendum, and, and the city has decided they they no longer want fluoride in their drinking water. And this is a movement that is really starting to to gain some traction. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, World Affairs Brief comes out with an interesting study uh, last week. Uh, even the the uh, Center for Disease Control now is warning against uh, the consumption of fluoride by infants. Uh, but there's more uh, to this story, Joel. Tell us about what um, this new study has found about the protective shield that fluoride uh, pr- supposedly provides. Well, there isn't any. <laughs> there, you know, they failed to document what they've been claiming all the time that fluoride does provide a, a protective shield, and uh, uh, you know the toxicity is such a problem that the CDC, as well as the but, yeah, CDC has, has recommended that they cut the fluoride dosage in half in water supplies, and that's going to give fuel to the fire to those who want it removed completely. I think it's one of the most toxic substances on this earth to put in water supplies because it, especially the two forms of fluoride that come are a form of industrial waste from the production of aluminum, uh, and it's just very, very dangerous to use. Why was it put in the water supply to begin with, Joel? Well, you know, there was this case about the, the 
natural occurring fluorides, uh, which are totally different, by the way, than these industrial fluorides. And there was some modeling of teeth, and that's occurring with these. There's also some neurological damage that's occurring because of fluoride in young children especially. But they, there were some natural occurring fluorides in the water that did uh, prevent caries, but that's been being duplicated in the fluoridation of water. It's not naturally occurring fluoride. It's a totally different form. And it's a very dangerous, toxic chemical form from industrial processes. This new study that uh, is published in World Affairs Brief, uh, it, quote uh, here, me, um, it would take almost 10,000 layers of uh, this, uh, this fluoride to span the width of a human hair. This is according to Science Daily. And uh, scientists are questioning whether a layer so thin, which is quickly worn away by ordinary chewing, really can shield teeth from decay. So, no, and it cannot. Now, the, po- the point is the naturally occurring fluoride, in fact, the entire nutritional basis of anti-carry theory is that it comes from inside the tooth. There is no coating whatsoever on the outside, fluoride or otherwise, unless it gets into the system. And unfortunately, this industrial toxic-type fluoride you know, gets in the system and acts as a, a neurological poison. And there's a lot of uh, difficult and very dangerous things happening to children because of fluoride. So uh, this whole thing about a topical coating is just bogus. There's no topical coating, thin or thick, that will protect the uh, teeth from caries. Uh, Joel, just a couple minutes remain, but uh, I do want to get to this story about this Christian homeschooling family in uh, New Jersey that's been broken apart. This is a a military family, uh, an Army major, and his wife, uh, devout Christian homeschoolers with a, a history of serving as adoptive and foster parents. They had five children taken away in April, no evidence, uh, and yet uh, the, uh, the agency, the DYFS, has not returned the children. And apparently uh, the, the, uh, the parents are claiming there is a real prejudice against not only their, uh, their Christian faith, but also against the whole homeschooling idea. This, is, this sounds like Nazi Germany. Well, and unfortunately, it really is a movement that's sweeping the bureaucracy involved in, in child protective services. They really do view spanking as an evil, as an abuse. And whenever you have Christian parents who tout in any of their literature, uh, which they confiscated from the home when they took the children away, talking about biblical scriptures about spare the rod and spoil a child, this isn't and they have advertised this is an abusive family, when in fact there's absolutely no evidence of abuse. I mean, this is persecution about belief rather than action. And unfortunately, once they have the children, the typical state action is to say, we're going to put you under this regime and this program, and you've got to jump through all these hoops for so many years uh, to prove your innocence. I mean, it's just uh, turning our legal system upside down. But unfortunately, the uh, guardian ad litem, the, uh, uh, which is basically a, a prosecutor of these cases, sits in the same room with the judge, and this isn't a district court judge in the United States, this is a special family judge, and they work in the same room, they're good friends, they go out to dinner together in most uh, counties and states. This is a very collusive relationship. It's very damaging. It's, uh, we're hoping that uh, this will give rise to a great deal of protest from uh, homeschooling and Christian families in the United States. I certainly certainly hope so, because I I find, you know, when you have these bureaucracies breaking up families, 
uh, it's just unconscionable. And uh, somebody has to shine a light on this. And I'm glad that it's uh, that it's being done. Thanks to uh, Joel Skousen and World Affairs Brief. Joel, thank you for this. My pleasure, Richard. Very quickly, again, how do people subscribe? They can go to worldaffairsbrief.com and click on the subscribe button. They can get a free sample issue by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com and I'll send them the current issue. Thanks again, Joel. Till next time. So long. Pleasure to meet you. Be with you, Richard. All right. Joel Skousen. All right, our Gary Patterson, the Fox Mulder of rock and roll, standing by, talking about the day the music died, 52 years ago, uh, coming up a little bit later this week. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. the sky ever wonder if someone's looking back this is the conspiracy show with richard serrett on zoomer radio am 740 to speak to richard live call 416-360-0740 or toll free in ontario 1-866-740-4740 you know originally a buddy recorded this back in 1956 for decca records uh, the uh, the producer, though, uh, that w- was assigned to that session was a guy by the name of Owen Bradley, and he hated rock and roll, and, and uh, as a result, he did a terrible job on this song. So Buddy then decides to re-record the song. He travels to New Mexico and re-records That'll Be the Day, this time, uh, you know, with his own superior arrangement. But according to the contract with Decca, he couldn't release it because Decca owned all the rights to his music. So he calls Decca to try and reason with them, and he actually secretly tapes the conversation. And, and uh, up until recently, you could actually listen to that conversation, apparently, on YouTube. It's no longer posted there. I'm, I'm sure somebody has it. But Decca refused to release uh, the, the rights to them. They refused to give him the rights to his own song. But he went ahead and he violated the contract. And, of course, that'll be the day. Uh, was a monster hit, his version. And uh, I don't know what, what the end story of whether he was sued by Decca, but we're going to find out. Because for the next hour and a half, we are going to uh, discuss the, uh, the day that the music died, the, uh, the deaths of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. Uh, next Thursday, Feb 3rd, will mark the 52nd anniversary. Hard to believe. Uh, of the uh, the deaths of uh, those gentlemen when their uh, their plane uh, crashed in a farmer's field after they left uh, following a concert at the surf ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa. And uh, here to talk about the many mysteries, coincidences, rumors, and legends surrounding this tragic event is R. Gary Patterson, a native Tennessean with a passion for rock and roll, a published author with uh, Simon & Schuster. His, uh, his works portray many fascinating events that helped shape musical history from Robert Johnson through uh, current groups making a place for themselves among rock and roll's standing legends. In 96, 
our Gary Patterson released his first book entitled The Walrus Was Paul, and immediately the book became highly sought after. Beetlefest catalog proclaimed The Walrus Was Paul as one of the best-selling titles of the year, and shortly thereafter, Gary released his second work, Hellhounds on Their Trail. Now, in this work, uh, Patterson continued with his popular theme of rock and roll's enduring myths and legends. Hellhounds on Their Trail begins with Robert Johnson waiting at the crossroads just outside Clarksdale, Mississippi, to make his deal with Old Scratch, as he's called. Other chapters focus on hidden messages in rock, Jimmy Page and the Zeppelin curse, strange fatal coincidences in the Allman Brothers and Leonard Skinner bands, and a discussion of an exclusive group of musicians who were members of the club, whose only membership requirement was untimely death at the tender age of 27. His third book was released by Simon & Schuster's Fireside Books in July 2004. It's called Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends and Curses. And of course, Gary is collecting more tales for his next volume of Great Rock and Roll Myths and Legends. So uh, we'll get an update very shortly on that, I'm sure. In the meantime, always a pleasure to have our Gary Patterson on The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Gary. How are you? I'm doing great, Richard. How are you? Very well. And and uh, before we get uh, going on, uh, on on Buddy Holly, a big congratulation, uh, congratulations to you on the, uh, the successful launch of Pop Odyssey Radio. Yes, thank you very much. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a fun show for me to do a couple of times a week, and we like to cover lots of interesting things. We have a lot of things about rock and roll, paranormal, and it's, it's just been a blast for me. And, and I appreciate you because uh, you were one of my guests, and you did a great job, and it's always good talking to you, my friend. Well, yeah, we have a great time, and one of these days uh, we're going to get together and, and uh, hoist a few uh, jars and uh, and just talk off the air for fun. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it just seems that, that that's what we do on the air anyway. It's, it's, well, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we definitely will catch up on that. That would be great. Also, I want to mention that I'm, I'm involved in another enterprise, and that is to find royalties for rock stars who've not been paid. Oh. So if anyone's out there who uh, has not been paid and they would like to have someone take their case and find out how much money is owed them for a small percentage, then you know they need to contact me at Pop Odyssey Radio or my website at www.rgarypatterson.com because my partner, John Hitchborn, I mean, he has found thousands of dollars for artists, and it, it really makes me feel good to help these people out and get the money to them that they so richly deserve. Well, that is a great cause because there are so many great uh, old R&B artists. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the name that comes immediately to mind, he's no longer with us, was Bo Diddley. He was just, yeah. uh, they just uh, took him uh, for everything. And it, what an unfortunate uh, situation. These talented individuals, many of them, of course, African-American, who were never who never got their due. So, Well, what's interesting is uh, John was the person who established the estate for Robert Johnson because Johnson's songs were thought to be in public domain, so he took over, uh, went to court, took on the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, and won. And the Johnson estate, which was zero before John Hitchborn, now comes in over seven figures. So I know they're very grateful to him. He's a great guy, and I tell you what, he really really takes care of people. And uh, so I've been working with him. We've been trying to recover lots of money for a lot of artists. And, you know, Richard, a lot of these people are personal friends, as, as well as you know, and you know that they've had a very terrible time. And, you know, a lot of times money can be misplaced. It may not actually be ripped off, but 
you know, we're trying to get it for them. So if anybody out there feels like you've been ripped off and you've got a contract to show that, you know, that you were part of the band, songwriter, performer, whatever, then let us help you because we'd like to get your money for you. That's, that's a very admirable uh, of you, uh, Gary. Good for you. All right. Let us uh, uh, dial it back uh, 52 years, coming up on Feb 3rd, the 52nd anniversary of uh, the deaths of Buddy Holly and now uh, the Big Bopper, of course, and, uh, and uh, Richie, uh, Richie Valens. And, of course, uh, there were others on board the plane as well, the pilot. Um, mm-hmm. but, but Buddy Holly, we're gonna, I mean, he's going to be the main focus, obviously, of, of the discussion. Um, I don't think people really appreciate, because he was with us for such a short time, what a, a huge talent this guy was. And I just, you know, when you listen to some of that stuff that, that was coming out in 56, 57, 58, he was 30 years ahead of his time. Uh, I mean, the, had he lived, what, what kind of an influence do you think uh, or a legacy he would have uh, had? I mean, he's just underrated, I think. Well, I think he was, especially in the United States. He was much bigger in England than he was here because the Beatles, the very first song they recorded, they bought a, a friend's tape recorder and cut a version of That'll Be the Day. And, of course, Paul McCartney owns the Buddy Holly catalog today. So they were listening very carefully. Of course, one of the funny stories is that when Buddy Holly was looking for a name for his band, they had the band sat down and they had a, an encyclopedia and they were going through words and and uh, they almost called themselves the Beatles. Is that right? And uh, Jerry Allison said, oh, a Beatle, that's something you want to step on. Let's call it the Crickets. So, you know, it's kind of funny, because could you imagine a group called Buddy Holly and the Beatles? You know, that would have uh, sort of taken, who knows what would happen in <laughs> 63 and 64 wow. without that name. But, yeah, it's really interesting. And I think that if Buddy had lived, uh, he would have kept pioneering. I mean, if you listen to his material, listen to his songs, there was a, your great growth there as a songwriter and double tracking and uh, just great quality. I do know that Buddy was planning to move back to Lubbock, Texas, and he was building a house with a studio built into the house. And do you know who his first uh, production client was going to be? Waylon Jennings. Ah. He was playing bass with him on the tour. So, right, right. you know, Buddy was, uh, he was thinking about going back to his roots, leaving New York, going back to Lubbock. I've seen the plans for his house with the studio. And, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, obviously, you know, his incredible technique of designing music for a three-piece band, his voice, uh, the crickets didn't do harmony. So when you hear the background vocals, those were usually put in by a group called the Roses or the Pickerings or whatever they called themselves, the Picks. And I think I heard somewhere that if you see a record that says Buddy Holly and the Crickets, then it has harmony. And if you see a song that's just entitled Buddy Holly, than it's just Buddy Holly by himself. But, you know, it was a great loss to the music world, and England took it much more severely than we did. Of course, ironically, the last song Buddy Holly had released was I Guess It Doesn't Matter Anymore. Mm. And, you know, in the United States, I think it made a pretty good showing after Buddy's death, but in England it went number one. You know what, what uh, when I listen to the music... Uh, I- I mean, you mentioned the double tracking, which is... I mean, who was doing that back then? Nobody. But the, what stands out to me is, uh, especially in the song Peggy Sue, was that, I, I guess you call it paradiddle drumming? Yeah. That, mm-hmm. that I mean, that was... I mean, you hear that, uh, you know, throughout the, the 60s, and I, even, you know, the Beach Boys and others were doing that later. But 
Was that Buddy Holly, or was that his drummer that came up with that? That was Jerry Allison. That was Jerry Allison. That was his drum warm-up when he was in the high school marching band. Oh, interesting. he was just going into that. And then there's a story that, uh, you know, there's so many legends on this. And, of course, you know, I think we had Peggy Sue on your show. We did, Peggy Sue Guerin, who was Jerry's wife. That's right. And Peggy, you know, she's she's a major historian on this. I'm glad that she's one of my dearest friends. But uh, the story goes in the legend that he was doing a drum part. Jerry was doing the drum part. And uh, Buddy said, if you can do that, if you can do it and not mess up through the whole song, then, you know, we'll do the song for your girlfriend, Peggy Sue. Because one legend says that Jerry wanted to do the song for her because he had broke her. She had broken up with him. He wanted to get her back. And what better way to make her a rock goddess? Now, I have to tell you, Peggy Sue sort of denies that story. But, you know, she was in California at the time. And then, of course, the other story was, if you watch the Buddy Holly movie, yes. Buddy Holly story, which I hate to say is probably the worst-made rock history in the history of cinema. I mean, when you make a movie, you can't even get the crickets' names correct in the movie. You have to <laughs> Richard. But, you know, in, in the movie, you know, he starts playing the drumsticks on the, on the seat, and he, says, he starts singing the song Cindy Lou, which was his niece. But, you know, it's kind of like when you write a song, it's like when Paul McCartney wrote yesterday, originally he called it Scrambled Eggs, because you were just looking for the syllables. And, of course, Peggy Sue feels that, you know, he had done the song for her because they were great friends. And then again, if you remember, he wrote another song for Peggy Sue called Peggy Sue Got Married. At his father's, yeah, it was his father's idea, I think. And uh, it was on the apartment tapes, one of the last songs he did. And it was kind of a lamentful song about Peggy Sue being married. Yeah. Jerry Allison and Buddy Holly were best friends. Well, I, I was going to ask you about that, because um, Peggy Sue got married. My understanding was that uh, it, Buddy's father thought Buddy should follow up his hit, Peggy Sue. And uh, so in the song, I mean, the lyrics, it almost sounds like Buddy is reluctant to acknowledge that the wedding took place. He's saying, please don't tell, no, 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 don't say mm-hmm. that, I told you so, I don't, you know, don't say that it's true. Was Buddy Holly in love with, with Peggy Sue? Oh, my gosh, Richard. We're going to open cans of worms. <laughs> well, first of all, you need to read the book, Whatever Happened to Peggy Sue. Uh, it's Peggy Sue's sure. biography. Mm-hmm. But what happened in, in the book, it mentions that Peggy and Jerry had visited Maria Elena and Buddy in New York. And when she was leaving the apartment, she was by herself at the time, and Buddy said, let me walk you to the street. So he gets in the elevator. And as they're going down the elevator, he stops the elevator. He says, look, I talked to two attorneys today. One attorney is set to do my publishing company, and I want you to help me with this. And he said, the other attorney is for a divorce, and I want you to divorce Jerry so that we can be together. Wow. She was shocked. And then right after that, the plane crash occurred. And But she always has a special place. i got to tell you, I mean, I know... By knowing Peggy Sue and talking to her, she she has this incredible love for Buddy Holly, and I mean she is she champions it. And when he died a few years later, she even learned to fly Beechcraft Bonanza herself, so she could find out you know how the plane operated and trying to make oh I don't know make sense out of the crash. Well, she has tracked down the plane. She knows where it is. Oh, my. She knows the hangar. Listen, we'll, we'll, and right now, Richard, we're yes. trying to negotiate an opportunity to get her there so we can see the plane, which hasn't been seen since February 5th, I guess, 
1959, a few days after the plane That's crash. incredible, Gary. Listen, we'll pick up on that when we come back. Our Gary Patterson, rock and roll investigator, talking about the day the music died. Feb 3rd, 1959, that took the life of Buddy Holly. Of course, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper. Many coincidences, rumors, legends swirling around that. Why did they exhume the Big Bopper's body? We'll find out about that as well. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. All of my love, all of my kissing. You don't know what you've been missing. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. When you go with me, oh, boy. Oh, boy. The world can see that you are oh, meant for me. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Buddy Holly. So many uh, strange coincidences, rumors and legends surrounding uh, his uh, death. Feb 3rd, 1959. Our Gary Patterson is with us, rock and roll investigator, rgarypatterson.com, the website. And uh, this is uh, a man with an encyclopedic uh, knowledge of not only uh, Buddy Holly, but uh, all the greats, all the legends. And uh, he's known many of them uh, personally. Uh, but let's, let's go back to, uh, to that night after the concert at uh, Clear Lake at the, uh, the Surf Ballroom. Now, again... Uh, Many of us have heard, you know, the certain aspects of this story time and time again. But just refresh our memory. Who was supposed to be on that plane? Who who was in the in the band uh, with uh, with Buddy? Who went by plane and who went by train or bus or what have you? Well, first of all, let's talk about what a terrible fiasco the whole winter dance party tour was. The the tour was held on school buses that continuously had broken down along the routes. The heaters didn't work. It was 40 below zero on those buses. And the musicians would take newspaper and burn the newspaper in the aisle of the buses trying to keep warm. But the problem is once they started the fire, it created smoke. So they had to roll the windows down to get the smoke out, which brought in more and more cold air. And this is what they were going through. On the last tour, of course, Buddy Holly and the Crickets had split up. He allowed the Crickets to use the name. And he put a band together with Tommy Alsop, who was a Sessions guitar player, older than the others, and he also played in Clovis, New Mexico, where Buddy recorded originally. And he had one of the funny stories is there was a DJ in Lubbock whose name was Waylon Jennings. And Buddy shows up at the studio and hands him a Fender bass guitar and says, Waylon, you got two weeks to learn how to play this, because you're going to be my bass player on the tour. And, you know, Waylon was excited. That was great. And for the drummer, he had Carl Bunch. Carl Bunch was very young, and he didn't even have flight cases for his drums. So Buddy or, you know, took care of the flight cases. They flew to New York, they rehearsed in New York, and then they set off for the one dance party. Well, the conditions on the bus were so terrible that Carl Bunch developed frostbite on his feet, and he was placed in the hospital. So now there was no drummer. And the story goes that Dion DiMucci from Dion and the Belmonts would sneak back and they'd turn the lights off the drummer, and Dion would play drums for Buddy Holly's band. And when Dion and the Belmonts went out, Buddy Holly would sneak back and he would play drums for Dion. And the conditions were so miserable that Buddy Holly had determined that, you know, he'd been sitting on the bus, he couldn't sleep, uh, he couldn't get his clothes clean. And, you know, the conditions of the bus, the temperature, the smoke, the fire, and, and what happened to Carl. So he decided that just for one nice good rest that he would rent and charter a small plane. And, of course, the plane had 
three seats, including, well, Roger Peterson was a pilot, so there were three other passengers. So the legend is that Buddy Holly intended to take he, Tommy Alsop, and uh, Waylon Jennings on the plane. It flies band out. Well, the big bopper had the flu, and he was terribly ill. So he goes up to Waylon Jennings, and he says, Look, Waylon, man, I'm sick. If you let me have your seat on the plane so I can go in, maybe I can visit a doctor, maybe I can get a shot for this, and maybe I'll feel better. He says, If you let me have your seat, I'm going to let you have this brand-new sleeping bag that my, mother, that my wife gave me. And, you know, so this will keep you really good and warm on the bus. Well, you know, Waylon liked the camaraderie with the other musicians, so he said, okay, you can have my seat and I'll take your sleeping bag. So that seat was full. Now, Richie Valance went up to Tommy also for some strange reason. He said, hey, Tommy, let me have the other seat. And Tommy said, no, I, I've got to fly out, man. He said, my parents have wired some money to me to Western Union. And he said, I have to be there. So he refused to let Richie have the seat. Now, Richard, what was interesting about this, Richie Valance had a terrible fear of flying because when he was in junior high, he used to set out on the school ground at lunch under a tree and play his guitar, and the kids would gather around him. He went to his grandfather's funeral, and on the day he went to the funeral, two planes crashed in the air over the schoolyard, and the debris fell on the tree and killed Richie Valens' best friend. Oh, my. So he had nightmares of plane crashes. So for whatever reason, he was determined to fly, and probably because Bob Keane had convinced him that now he was a rock star with Donna and La Bamba and a number of other so uh, songs. He'd been on American Bandstand. He had been in, in, t in film, so he had to do it. So anyway, Buddy Holly, uh, the big bopper, and uh, Tommy also went to the airport. When they get to the airport, Buddy says, Tommy, you need to go back to the surf ballroom and make sure all our equipment is accounted for. So Tommy turns around, goes back to the airport. When he gets there, he sees Richie Valens again. So Richie tells him, he says, look, man, just flip a coin with me, and I won't bother you anymore. Just flip a coin. So according to the legend, Tommy reaches in, pulls out a half dollar, flips it up in the air, tells Richie to call it. Richie says, heads. It winds up to be heads. And Richie turns around and tells everybody, he says, man, I can't believe this. He said, this is the first time I ever won. Mm. So now they head back to the airport. Well, Tommy takes his wallet and gives it to Buddy so that Buddy can pick the check up at Western Union while Tommy was on the bus to have a form of identification. So when they get on the plane, the big bopper gets in first. Richie gets in back, but next to the bopper, so the back seat's full. As Buddy's getting on, he turns and looks back at Waylon Jennings, who had come to wave goodbye. And Buddy looks at him and he says, Hey, Waylon, I hope your old bus uh, breaks down and you freeze your butt off. And Waylon looked at him and said, Yeah, and I hope your old plane crashes. Oh, and he lived with that for the rest of his life. He did. And then when they left, no one had heard the plane had gone down. It crashed probably nine miles out of town. And when it crashed, it crashed at full speed, head-on into this frozen ground. When they had realized the plane had gone down, it didn't make its journey. They found the wreckage. It hit a fence, and they found the bodies of Richie Valens and, and Buddy Holly to the sides of either side of the plane. The big bopper's body was 40 feet in front of it over a fence, and Roger Peterson, a pilot, was still trapped inside the plane, mm -hmm. all wrapped up in, in the wreckage. So when the coroner came, they moved the bodies. And this is what I find very ghoulish, because the coroner 
actually took his hands, reached down into their pockets, took out their money, and paid himself from their money. Oh, my. For his examination. Oh, my okay? Lord. Is that, that's not even legal, is it? I have no idea, but I've never heard of that before. Oh, that's disgraceful. Now, the other thing about this is radio. As soon as they had heard that the plane had crashed with three rock and rollers and a pilot, and it was, uh, you know, the same location where the music man, the play, takes place. So they go on the air and say, Buddy Holly's dead, Richie Valens is dead, uh, the Big Bopper's dead, Roger Peterson, the pilot's dead. And then one rumor came out the crickets were dead. And they also found the wallet belonged to Tommy uh, Alsop. So they called Tommy Alsop's parents and told them that he was dead. And they kept looking for the other body. Of course, Tommy was on the bus, and he didn't know that. So, you know, after their death and after the radio fiasco of announcing their names, now you have to notify the next of kin before you can make any announcement of someone's death on the radio. So that's one thing that came out about it. So I guess that... The day the music died, you know, was one of the greatest events in rock and roll history that changed the whole generation. That's true. That's true. So as a result, uh, just to, 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 uh, to repeat, because uh, that might have slipped by somebody, it was a, as a result of that plane crash that they instituted the policy of contacting the next of kin before Correct. anything. My word. All right. Yeah. And um, very interesting. I'll say. Have you been, I mean, is the, uh, is the surf ballroom still there? In Clear Lake Island? Still there. They still have concerts. And there was a concert on the 50th anniversary show. Of course, what was funny was that the crickets played, and everybody who played that night, even Bobby V, but everybody who played the concert, none of them are actually there that night. No. You know? It'd been nice if they'd had Dion, you know, from Dion and the Belmonts, and he could tell the story, and, you know, some of the other musicians who had survived. I mean, Carl Bunch is still alive. I had him on our show, and he was talking about it. One of the things Carl told me that I thought was really interesting is while he was in the hospital, he was. He said, you're not going to believe this. He said, but I was physically visited by Buddy Holly, the Bopper, and Richie Valens. And it, he said, I know they just came by to tell me goodbye. Oh, my. And he said he and Richie Valens were especially close because they were the youngest. Richie Valens was 17 years old mm. when he died in that plane crash. And Buddy was what, 22? 22. And the bopper was 28. And Roger Peterson was 24. Buddy would be 73 now. He, 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 I mean, that's, you know, by today's standards, that's reasonably young. He would still be out there touring, I have no doubt. <laughs> Well, there's lived. a lot of lookalikes who still tour. Yeah. You know, they even have a, a lookalike tour of the Winter Dance Party, and uh, they have a Buddy Holly impersonator. They have uh, a Richie Valens impersonator, and the Big Bopper's son, Jay Jr., actually plays the role of his father. All right, when we come back, we'll uh, we'll talk about uh, Jay Jr. because it was uh, just a couple of years ago that. Uh, Jay requested his father's body be exhumed, I believe, down in Beaumont, Texas, and we'll find out why that was, what that autopsy revealed. Our Gary Patterson, rock and roll investigator, joining us here on The Conspiracy Show, talking about the day the music died. If you have questions about uh, that tragic event or any of the, uh, the rumors or legends, we'll open up the phone lines now, 416 360 Sorry, 416-360-0740. 
and toll free from out of town, 866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Our Gary Patterson is with us, the rock and roll investigator. Always a great time when uh, Gary joins us on the program. His knowledge is just so vast. And uh, it's, it's a perfect fit for this program because there's so many interesting uh, legends and, and rumors and coincidences and, uh, and curses uh, uh, involved in, in rock and roll, and he's documented them all. Right now, of course, we're talking about the, uh, the deaths of Buddy Holly, uh, Richie Valens, and J.P., the big bopper Richardson, who uh, in March of 2007... Uh, was exhumed. Uh, his body, which was in his remains, were in Beaumont, Texas, and uh, his his son Jay Jr. Uh, asked that his his body be exhumed. Tell me, how did that uh, come about? Uh, I mean, how does one get a, a body exhumed? And and then, why why on earth would would uh, Jay want his father's uh, body exhumed almost fifty years after his death? This is a great story, and I'm lucky to say that. Uh, Jay Jr. is a friend of mine, and on the 50th anniversary of the crash, I put this show together for Coast to Coast that had Peggy Sue, Jay Jr., and Donna Ludwig, who Richie Valens had written O'Donna for. And I thought, man, this will be cool because you're going to have the three great figures who would be closest to those people dying in the in the plane crash. So I know this story well because I talked to him about it. So here's the story. In Beaumont, Texas, they decided that the town had decided to build a monument to the Big Bopper. And, of course, Jay, you know, his, his thing is, uh, I've got to tell you that he was born a few months after his father's death. His mother was pregnant with him. And when he was born, his mother did not want him to do anything with the music business. She kept him out of it, you know, because she was convinced had taken her husband away from her. And so Jay, you know, he was... He grew up and wanted to know everything he could about his father. I mean, he called Piggy Sue and said, tell me about my dad. You know, everyone who knew him, you know, he was in this great thirst for knowledge. Well, he owned a nightclub, and one of the bands was playing there after it was over. You know, he sat down, had a few drinks with them, and went over to the jukebox and put on Chantilly Lace and sang it. 
and he had a voice that was very, very close to his dad. So the manager of the band said, look, why don't you come to South Carolina and, uh, and audition, and let's see if I can book you. And, you know, you can put on your dad's cheetah, can, uh, cheetah skin coat and get out there and, and sing a song and do a tribute to him, because who better than his son? So he thought he'd go out, and he said, well, if it failed, I'd just go fishing, you know, because that's the kind of guy Jay is. And they go out, they start booking him, and now he plays the role of his father on the Winter Dance Party Tour. Now, I haven't talked to him in about a year, and I understand that he went through some surgery. He had some health issues, and I hope he's doing well. I need to talk to him. But So that's the story about how he became the Big Bopper Jr. Now, that goes in with what happened with his father's body. Once he started researching what had happened, there were many, many rumors of a gun that was on the plane. And we know that Buddy Holly carried a briefcase because he was paid in cash. And in that briefcase, he had a handgun. All right, now, when the plane had crashed, it was the spring before they moved the wreckage. When they moved the wreckage, they found a handgun, and it had been fired. So everyone's trying to wonder what happened to make this plane crash just nine miles from takeoff. So there was a rumor that either there was a fight in the plane and the gun was used, it went off, and the pilot was killed. Jerry Dwyer, who owns the plane, always tells me that his pilot was incapacitated. That's the word he uses. So when Jay had heard these stories, you know, he was, he was kind of concerned. Was there a gun in the plane? Had his father been shot? Had there been a shot to kill the pilot? And after that, they found a lot of candy wrappers around the plane. So the rumor at the time was they were all on drugs, and that's why they had to have the sugar fix. Now, actually, Richard, there were, you know, how many restaurants were open at 1 o'clock in the morning back in 1959? I mean, when you're touring, you have to have anything to have energy. So that was, but that was another one that was really baseless. So what Jay wanted to do, the thing that haunted him the most was that his father's body was found 40 feet in front of the plane. Now, from my understanding, he was sitting behind the pilot, so I don't know how his body could have been thrown over the pilot out into the field. So Jay was concerned that his father may have survived for a short time and was in incredible pain and was trying to crawl through that field to get help before he died. And it haunted him because he could not stand to think of his father in such terrible pain. So when they decided to move his father and mother's body to the monument in Beaumont, Jay had his chance to have an autopsy done to see, did his father die immediately or could he have survived the initial crash? So who do you call? You know, you call Dr. Bass from the body farm at the University of Tennessee, which is pretty close to me. So there was an agreement made that Dr. Bass would come to Beaumont, Texas, the body would be exhumed, there would be an autopsy, starting with x-rays, and everyone would know, was the big bopper killed immediately, or had he somehow survived in terrible agony? Was he shot? So was, yeah, or, or was he shot? Advanced. Yeah. Yeah. Or if there was a gunshot wound. Okay? Now, in history... After the plane crash, there was only one autopsy performed on all four men, and that was the pilot because it has to do with regulations. Now, I honestly believe that during an autopsy of the pilot, if he had been shot, they would have found the bullet or they would have found the wound. Dwyer believes that there was a bullet hole in the back of the seat. All right, now, the only way we can find that out 
is to go see the plane. And right now, there's some negotiations to allow a film crew and to reinvestigate with forensic science the plane to see what happened. I also understand that Jerry is writing a book to clear his pilot, Roger Peterson. Yes, who was, so, who's yeah, been blamed. Find out about that. His, his pilot, uh, Roger Peterson, has been blamed for, 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 for a horrible judgment and trying to take off mm-hmm. in horrible weather. But if, if there was a, 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 a shot fired on that plane, even if it didn't hit the pilot, the chaos, the, 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 the mm-hmm. fear, that could have been enough to cause the plane to have crashed. Exactly. So or, you, if you remember, the big bopper was pretty ill. He was sitting in the back. And he was a pretty big fellow. So what if Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper tried to switch places while the plane was taken off? That's another possibility. Because if the Bopper was sick, it'd give him more room. Right. Another... If would throw the weight out, it would crash. See, there's all these great theories. So, back to the story. Yes. Now, this is something that, you know, when I talk to him, I really can't explain this, Richard. And I, I think you'd probably be on my side on this. <sighs> Jay wanted to see his father's body. Mm. Now, his father had been dead 50 years. And they didn't know, even Dr. Bass told him he didn't know exactly what kind of condition the body would be in when they opened it. Because it was 50 years ago. So he brings his children. And they open the coffin. And Jay has a few minutes to stay with his father and look at him. And I think it was important to Jay because Jay had never seen his father. And he had spent his whole life trying to find out more about him. And from what I understand, and Dr. Bass makes a number of lectures, and from what I understand, he has slides of opening the, uh, the grave and the coffin, showing the big bopper. Oh, my. And uh, so if you ever go see Dr. Bass at one of his lectures on the body farm and forensic medicine, you'll see this. I haven't seen the slides, but those who have, and Jay, tells me that his body was perfectly preserved. Oh, my Lord. How is that possible? And that the crew cut that he had in 1959 looked like he had just gone to the barber shop that day. How is that possible? I have no idea. You hear that? No you have you you hear about saints uh, uh, and their remains being totally incorrupted after you know being dead for hundreds of years, and it's some sort of a miracle. And 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 here we yeah. have. My lord, fascinating. And the only thing Jay said, he said, "Well, the only thing I know is that I know my dad would have hated the tie he had on it. <laughs> that was my mom. So he brought that up. And then after he spent some time alone with the corpse." He has his children come in so they can see their grandfather. You know, and, right. and when I hear that, I say, you know, to me that would be the source of nightmares. I guess that's know? a little macabre. You know what's, what else was interesting? When Jay's looking at his father, he's now older than his father was. Exactly, because his father was twenty-eight, and you know, Jay's much older. He does have a resemblance, mm. and he has the voice. That would be strange. But what they did, they X-rayed the body. Doctor Bass went through it. And this is the result. He died instantly mm. from the breakage of the bones and the injury sustained. Dr. Bass was able to assure Jay that his father died instantly in the crash, and there was no pain and suffering because he died upon impact. Now, what was interesting is that 
the one of the funeral homes in Beaumont had agreed to purchase a brand new coffin for the big bobber. So they placed him in a brand new coffin and buried him next to his wife in Beaumont, Texas, by the monument. And when I was off coast to coast, Jay says, well, Gary, I've got an issue here. And he said, I've got this coffin. I really don't know what to do with it. The old one? The old one. Mm. And they had removed all the padding. So right. actually what it was was the shell. And I was thinking, what do you mean what to do with it? You know, <laughs> what do you do with a coffin from 1959 that the Big Bopper was the resident of, you know, for 50 years? So, you know, I, he said, well, maybe I can donate it to some sort of funeral home museum and they can put it out there, you know, if the day the music died. Well, it's one of three coffins that probably if anybody ghoulish enough would want to look at it, you know, I guess it would be there. And then he said something about, well, you know, one thing you could do, you could put a few kegs of beer and ice in it. And I'm thinking, well, you know, that's probably <laughs> not anything I'd want to do. No, no. So right after that, I get a phone call from Peggy Sue. And she says, Gary, oh, my God, that coffin's on eBay. eBay. Oh, my. <laughs> and, you know, so it went down very quickly. So I, I don't know if someone was an agent trying to sell it or whatever. I don't know where it is. I need to call him and find out whatever happened to the, For sure. Absolutely. Of the big bopper. Well, you know, they recently it was uh, on the cover of National Enquirer. They were selling, uh, they were looking to sell Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, a coffin because his body also was exhumed and moved. Listen, I got to exactly. get to a, I got to get to a call here. Uh, Les has been uh, waiting patiently in Nashville. Les, welcome to the conspiracy show. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. Yeah, I've, I've had the pleasure of playing harmonica with uh, Mario Valance, which is Richie Valance's younger brother. Right. Um, I played all up and down to uh, California and all over. They, they've got a band called the Backyard Blues Band. And uh, I've been to their house, and I've seen all of the uh, albums on the walls and the pictures and the memorabilia. And, uh, oh, it's it's fantastic just, just being able to, be there and uh, be around the family and listen to them and I've, I've known them for 20 plus years and uh, it's it's just uh, Mario plays blues he, he he won't play the rock and roll um, he knows every song that Richie ever put out but mm-hmm. uh, he plays his own music and does his own thing and and uh, he, over uh, up and down the coastline there he he's uh He's well known all over uh, the, the, you know, the the uh, West Coast, and uh, his music, his family music lives on through them. It's it's great that the whole family is musically inclined, you know. But oh, it uh, is. It's just, it's just part of being able to. Let me just walk say one there. thing real quickly. I want to interrupt you, but you know, no, you no, know no, how refreshing ahead. it is to talk to somebody who doesn't have an accent. <laughs> I don't have an accent. Okay, great. <laughs> no, except for me. I'm the one with the accent. Hey, Les. Well, yeah, well, you know, we're both from Tennessee. That's so let's right. Go. Yeah, that's you're good. talking about Beaumont. See, I'm living over in Abilene, Texas right now. I've, oh, okay. I've been, I've been over uh, through the Boppers' uh, backyard and, you know, back home and all that. And uh, Right now I'm driving trucks, so I've, I've been out here for quite a few years driving trucks. Okay. I, uh, Les, if I, I could do. ask you, Les, uh, how are you picking the show up tonight? On regular radio or... Um, yes, on the AM dial, uh, I'm at the truck stop out here at Lebanon uh, by Nashville. Terrific. All right. I know where that is. Yeah, I'm sitting out here at the pilot truck stop, and I, I always chase 
I don't even have XM and all that. I just chase the AM, FM, and pick up all the talk shows as long as I can and listen to them. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of old school. I, <laughs> I, I still play my harmonicas uh, every every place I get a chance to step in with a band and. I've played all over the United States. But, well, Les, uh, thank you so much for uh, for checking in at the, the uh, truck stop near Nashville. Great to hear from you, and uh, I hope you'll, right. uh, you'll give us a call again sometime. Great story. All right. Uh, Gary, uh, the, um, yeah. okay, so the, the, the Big Bopper, uh, we've, we've pretty much put that rumor to, to, to bed that, uh, that uh, he was a victim of a, a gunshot or that um, mm-hmm. he, he lived, uh, you know, after the plane crash. Yeah. Um, I want to talk though about about Buddy's uh, mental state when we come back, uh, because he had this. I mean, he had this um, new wife and a baby. Uh, he had an apartment in Greenwich Village. He had this career that was taking off. He should have been a very happy man. But when you look at some of the songs on that, uh, you know, those apartment uh, tapes, some pretty, you know, downbeat. It didn't sound like he was very happy, so maybe we can uh, we can talk about um, where Buddy's head was at around this okay. time as well. Our Gary Patterson is with us, and uh, we'll get to your calls as well. Michael in the Beaches, Terry in Scarborough, as we continue to discuss the day the music died. Here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Buddy Holly should have been on top of the world. Even though this uh, winter dance party was a tour from hell, I mean, the conditions were abysmal, as uh, Gary Patterson has outlined. Uh, And I guess... The money wasn't uh, what it should have been uh, for Buddy, but he certainly needed the money. He had a, um, a new wife, beautiful uh, Puerto Rican um, receptionist at uh, his uh, music publishers, uh, Maria Elena Santiago. They had this uh, apartment in Greenwich Village. I believe they had a new, uh, a new child. Uh, so he needed the cash. But he should have been happy. He should have been happy, Gary, but when you listen to some of those songs he recorded on that Ampex tape deck, um, in his apartment, they've been described as some of the most angst-ridden in the entire canon of rock. I mean, what was what was Buddy's problem? Well, you know, <clears throat> I have a feeling that by knowing some of the sources I do, there's there's many stories to this, Richard. And I know, I know that you love a great conspiracy. Okay, I do. And and what I'm going to tell you is not necessarily what I believe, but it's it's been told me by people who are very close. So. You know, all it is is just something that you would read in a book or you would talk to someone and you don't know exactly what, you know, what purpose they would have for telling you. But, you know, I know that a couple of things bother me. And one is that when Buddy was on the tour, no one ever remembers him talking about 
being an expectant father. And the big bopper was constantly bragging about his child. And, but he never said anything. And so people who were close to that, you know, they look at it, maybe Buddy didn't know that, or maybe that didn't happen. But then I remember Don McLean says, I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride. And so you have that. Now, you know, that may be true. I'm just saying that there's, there's always two sides to every story, right? Indeed. And that was told to me by someone on the Winter Dance Party mm. Tour. And I also know that when Buddy was buried in Lubbock, Texas, at the Baptist Church, that his wife had flown into town, but she didn't attend a funeral. Oh, my. And in Peggy Sue Got Married, there's a scene where Peggy Sue goes to the Holly house to bring her because she felt like she didn't drive and she was going to go get her. So she leaves the funeral to go get her. And Maria Elena told, told Peggy Sue in Peggy Sue's book that she was going to get the man who killed Buddy. And that's the story about Norman Petty from Clovis, New Mexico, and the, the royalty issue that Buddy would have to go out and do the winter dance party to make the money back mm. for, his, you know, for his family. But in the South, we have a strange thing, and it's probably the same way in Canada And when, when you do a funeral. When the minister steps up, the first thing they do, they read a, a list of the survivors. Maria Elena's name wasn't on the list of survivors. Oh, my. Now, you know, I know that the Buddy Holly story movie has really sort of interpreted a lot of the history of Buddy Holly. And I guess that's why, you know, when I watched the movie, I think the greatest thing it did was introduce Buddy Holly's music to a whole new generation. I think people have heard the songs, but they didn't realize it was that skinny kid from Texas with the black rim glasses. And, and I'm not saying, I mean, I find that to be interesting. I don't know if it's true. I'm not saying it is. But I have heard that. Mm. And uh, so, you know, you're talking about why he's despondent? You know, who knows? But uh, there's two ways of looking at it. It's either the idea that he was starving, but he was making money from his royalties. And uh, it, uh, Norman Petty was trying to get back with him so they could do some more recording. And, of course, if you watch the Buddy Holly story, they record in his garage and they go to New York and record and doesn't even mention Clovis, New Mexico, or Norman Petty. Hmm. And that's where the hits were written. And that's where he became famous. And, of course, Buddy Holly couldn't read music. And there's a scene where he does his violin arrangement, you know, in the movie, which wasn't true at all, you know. <laughs> so I'm beginning to wonder if the movie has affected a lot of this. I'm not sure. And, you know, we're going to have to get Peggy Sue on and some of these people to really go into the details. And, uh, but, you know, I just want to, as a historian, you know, you see the full gamut. Yeah, you got to point and it out there. That's, that's yeah, remarkable. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, you know, those are, those are issues that have been brought up, and, you know, people can choose to believe what they will or investigate further. Well, whatever happened to um, Maria Santiago and their child? Well, according to the story, she had a miscarriage right after that. Ah. Uh. But... You know, uh, Betty Holly's mother uh, would have been very happy if she was going to have a grandson or yes. granddaughter, and she didn't say anything about it. It just seems odd, you know. I'm not saying, you know, I, I, I hate to get in this position and try to change everything, 
But, you know, I mean, I've heard that. and I mean, it, it bears some good investigation. Is Maria uh, Santiago still with us? Is she still alive? She's still with us, yeah. She's hmm. still there. Maybe should, someone should track her down and get her side of the story. Well, uh, it would be good. She lives in Dallas, Texas. And uh, she makes some pretty good money right now. And, uh, you know, anytime Buddy Holly's name's used in Lubbock, Texas, there's a fee that's paid. And so I, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, Maria Leno is the one who approved the script for the Buddy Holly story. Oh, she is. So it's really her story. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Listen. Did I let, handle that diplomatically enough? You did, indeed. <laughs> you, did. you are a master. You are a master, sir. Okay. <laughs> let's, uh, let's get to some phone calls here. Terry is in Scarborough. Okay. Good morning, Terry. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Hello? Hi, Terry. You're on the air. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I'm just listening to about the, the, the day the music died, and it's really interesting, you know, because uh, um, those, were, those were my favorite singers. Right. Yeah, the Big Bopper, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens. Now, I did contact the San Bernardino Mission Cemetery where uh, Richie Valens is buried. Mm-hmm. They were very helpful to me when I phoned last year on May 13th. That would have been his birthday. He right. Was, he was born May 13th of 1941. And the lady said, we've had hundreds of people come up to, um, to the San Bernardino Mission Cemetery where he's buried. And, they were, and I asked information concerning about when he died, you know, if he was ever placed into a burial vault. And they checked up the information. He said, yes, his casket was put into a burial vault. So he would last a very, very long time in a vault. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm surprised that when, the, when the J.P. Richardson's uh, son had his father exhumed, um, how he could have been in one piece all these years. You know, there there are some strange uh, things that happen um, depending on the uh, the temperature, the, the the you know the the water table. Uh, I've I've heard uh, skeptics try and explain, for example, why certain uh, uh, saints uh, that have been canonized, uh, why their bodies were preserved, trying to find some some logical physical explanation of you know beyond the supernatural. So, and and in reading some of those accounts. I've come to learn that there are some some rare circumstances and conditions under which a body can last a very long time, and I guess that's probably what happened uh, with the Big Bopper. Terry in uh, Scarborough, thank you for that. Thanks, Terry. Michael is in the beaches. Hello, Michael. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Uh, Yes. uh, Hello, Richard and Gary Patterson. I was going to phone and talk about something else, but uh, I changed my mind. I'm going to make a <laughs> I'm going to make a comment this time. <laughs> when I was a little kid, you know, around ten and eleven, I, I heard the song "American Pie," and uh, uh, at that time, I didn't realize uh, what it was about. Just being ten or eleven, but it sounded to me like. Um, someone's bad dream or nightmare about, you know, a football game, for instance, that suddenly stopped or, you know, dan- uh, dancing that stopped and near the end, you know, a fire breaks out like a power outage fo- followed by a fire with violent storms or something like that. Maybe you can just, uh, you know, comment on that. But at the time, I didn't know anything you know, really about uh, the plane crash or anything like that. There is some wonderful uh, and, and strange imagery, to be sure, in in that song. It's so, even if you don't know the story of Buddy Holly, just this, it's there's such nostalgia there and such a longing 
in that in that yeah. song. Uh, can you shed any light on on uh, what maybe some of the more interesting passages of that song and how they relate to Gary? Yeah, well, you know, it's the history of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. You know? it's Don McLean was a newspaper boy, and when he talks about uh, February, made him shiver with every paper he delivered, and it was his impact or the impact upon him of the plane crash that took away music that was fun and danceable. Because rock and roll changed after this, and it became more political. And the days when it came out, it was born in innocence. It was boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets jealous, boy wants girl back. Hopefully it's a happy ending. And, you know, it was fun. When you listen, when you listen to Buddy Holly, you can't help but smile. When you listen to Little Richard, it does the same thing. And when he gets into the idea about the birds and uh, the stones and the more political thing, then, you know, he sort of laments the idea of the loss of the innocence of the whole thing of rock and roll. Now, Don McLean, as a great artist, will tell you that he's not going to tell you what any of this means. Because if he does, it ruins the whole thing. Because what's supposed to happen is we're supposed to formulate our own ideas and our own passion with the song, which is what we do. Now, one of the great... I guess you would say urban legends, was that the title of the song American Pie was taken from the plane that Buddy Holly was killed in. And that's not true, okay? But it's a great Internet legend. So the song is is lamenting of the, the loss of innocence of how rock and roll was when you went to sock hops and kicked off your shoes and you had a great time. Indeed. All right, out to uh, Rexdale in the west end of uh, Toronto. Matt is checking in. Good morning, Matt. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, AM740. Gents, how are you this morning? We're well, thank you. Great. That's great to hear. I was just wondering, between the two of you, perhaps you could end a, a decades-old argument that I've had with a friend of mine. Now, he is a, a stoic Elvis fan, and I am a stoic Buddy Holly fan. <laughs> now, I stand by my statement that the best thing to ever happen to Elvis was, was Buddy Holly's untimely death. Now, my friend stands by Elvis by saying that Elvis was a better musician and being a musician for the last 45 odd years said no to be a musician you have to play an instrument I have never seen a video or a film of Elvis with a guitar with strings on it now is that just me sort of okay now I'm I'm going to set this straight for you okay Elvis could play the guitar. He could play the piano. Okay, he, he was an accomplished guitar player. He had Scotty Moore, but he could play a few chords. But to sell your argument, it's not the musician. Elvis Presley never wrote one song in his entire life. Buddy Holly wrote all of his songs. Now, was it a big advantage for Elvis when Buddy died? Well, if you remember, Elvis was in the army when Buddy died. Matter of fact, 1959 could be called the year the music died because Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, the big bopper, killed in the plane crash, Elvis in the Army, okay? Uh, Chuck Berry was arrested for violation of the Mann Act, and he was in prison. He was on Little Richard. Yeah, uh, I remember that. You know, was almost killed in a plane crash, he felt, and he said, said that if God would let him live, that he'd give up rock and roll to become a minister. He did. Jerry Lee Lewis 
was married to Myra, who was 13 years old. They discovered that in England. He tried to tell her to act like she was 15, but he didn't think that would be scandalous enough. It was. And then when they found it was 13, it was worse. So he goes into country music. He loses his career. And guess what else happens? The man who coined the phrase rock and roll, Alan Freed, was destroyed by the payola scandals. Right, right. So there's a bit of a dead spot there. Yeah, and then you know who brings it out? The Beatles in 64 because of their love for Buddy Holly and Carl Perkins and a lot of the old music. So rock and roll at that time period was rather sterile. Now, I mean, you had Fabian, you had Elvis all was that an music. accomplished piano player and guitarist? He could play some piano. He liked to sing uh, gospel hymns, and he, he always... Co- Always said he could play three or four chords on the guitar. Yeah, he wasn't. A con- he wasn't. Matt, uh, I don't think if you if you heard you heard Gary correctly, he said he wasn't an accomplished guitarist. Oh, what? And I and I and I've seen Elvis, you know, playing uh, uh, Unchained Melody on the piano, of course, in his last concert. Mm-hmm. He was not an accomplished pianist either. Oh, I'm sorry. I... But his his voice was an instrument. I oh, mean, well, absolutely. There's no taking away from that. And it, I I would say, you know. You, you look at some of the greatest performers that, that you know that, that straddled the 20th century like a colossus, like Frank Sinatra and Elvis. They weren't songwriters. They weren't musicians. But no, they were the whole could, package. There they was could, they could interpret a song written by exactly. someone else. Exactly. That's and that's and a huge look at talent. The songs that Paul Anka wrote for Frank Sinatra. Yes. Sure. Phenomenal. But here's but do I still win my argument? Buddy that, Holly. Buddy Holly would not have gone into rock and roll or rockabilly if it hadn't been for when Elvis appeared in Lubbock, Texas, and Buddy saw the reaction of the girls to him. That took him out of country music, straight hillbilly, into rock and roll. So Elvis influenced Buddy into rock and roll. Interesting. Oh, so I don't have a definitive decision on... (laughs) I I think trying to compare them is is like trying to compare, you know, Muhammad Ali to Joe Lewis. Two different eras, two different types of fighters. You know, you just... Why do it? Yeah, you can't do it. Yeah, but if you want to argue it, here's your argument. Buddy Holly wrote his own songs. Yep, that's good enough. He changed (laughs) all the music was by Buddy Holly. Now, that takes, you know, being an accomplished musician to do that, okay? Elvis was lucky enough that he had people write great songs for him, like Lieber and Stoller wrote songs, and uh, Doc Palmas and Morris Schumann wrote songs for Elvis Presley. So his voice was the instrument. So, I mean, it's going to be an argument. Both men really did a great deal for rock and roll, and obviously it's touched you and your friend. And the sad thing for Elvis was when he came out of the Army, he started thinking he was more like... Uh, Dean oh, Martin. I don't know. Dean Martin. Dean Martin. Yeah. Getting into the movie thing. Can now. I play the trump card and say that Buddy Holly could fight his way out of a roller rink? <laughs> Does that hold any credence whatsoever? <laughs> I mean, Elvis was well, in the Army, but... Come on, Buddy Holly could chuck knuckles to hold his own. <laughs> there you go. Great call. Thank well, you for that, Matt. I how to win this argument. And have on VH1 sometime. Well, you know, you don't, you don't need to win it. It's just it's a great way to spend an evening is having that discussion. Oh, that's Nobody what old guys do. We discuss the good, the good music. That's, that, that's, yeah. Those are the kind of conversations I like. Matt, thank you for the call. I hope you'll Thanks call again. Much. Thanks, Matt. All right, listen, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, some of the connections uh, with, with Buddy Holly and some of the strange okay. coincidences there. Like Bobby Fuller, here's a guy who, mm-hmm. who made a career out of sounding like Buddy Holly and mm-hmm. died under rather mysterious circumstances himself. We'll, uh, we'll talk about uh, Gary Fuller's untimely death and maybe some other connections. Uh, you can connect the dots for us, uh, Gary Patterson, as we discuss the deaths of Buddy Holly. Richie Valens and the Big Bopper on the eve of the 52nd anniversary of the day the music died. Stay with us.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Our Gary Patterson. Take a walk on the wild side. Rock and roll legends, myths, and curses. Uh, Gary, Bobby Fuller. Uh... Another uh, resident of Texas, like uh, Buddy Holly, he idolized uh, Buddy Holly. And uh, he sounded an awful lot like Buddy Holly. Uh, and, and, and I believe his band, uh, the Bobby Fully Fuller Four, was signed to Mustang Records by Bob Keane, who you mentioned earlier. And he was noted for discovering Richie Valens, and, and uh, he, he produced a lot of those surf music groups as well. But some interesting connections, Buddy Holly, uh, or uh, Bobby Fuller, had a very mysterious uh, death as well. Um, what can you tell us about that? Okay, maybe before we do Bo- uh, Bobby, just take about 15 seconds and think that when uh, Buddy died on the plane crash, he was replaced by a country sa- or a rock singer from Texas whose name was Ronnie Smith. Mm. When the winter dance party was over, Ronnie Smith comes back, checks himself into a sanatorium, and hangs himself. Oh, my. Okay? The crickets then bring in David Box who was like 17 at the time. And he sounded so much like Buddy Holly. A lot of people hear his version of Piggy Sue get, got married and think it's actually Buddy when it's actually David. Well, he leaves the band in Houston, Texas, charters a small plane with his band. He crashes. He's killed at the exact age of Buddy Holly at 22. My. So it seems to be bad luck if you're following Buddy. I would say, now, yeah. Bobby Fuller had sent demo tapes to Buddy's mother and father. And... Buddy's father had sent the demo tapes to Clovis, New Mexico, to Norman Teddy, and Teddy and uh, Fuller recorded together. Well, Buddy, I'm sorry, Bobby goes out to California and meets Bob King, and Delphi Records was uh, Bob's main label. Of course, if you talk about a hard luck label, Richard, you had three major artists that he had. Uh, Bob Keane had Richie Valens killed in a plane crash, Sam Cooke, a mysterious shooting in, in L.A., and then Bobby Fuller. He was actually investigated by the FBI because they were thinking that there may be huge life insurance policies on this artist. So you talk about the ultimate conspiracy. Bob King died last year. But Bobby Fuller, when he goes out to California, he records a song called I Fought the Law and the Law Won, which was written by Sonny Curtis, one of the crickets. Okay? So he does very well. The last song Bobby Fuller recorded was Love's Made a Fool of You, which is a Buddy Holly song. In Mm. July... Uh, 1963, 64, I believe, or maybe may a little later, in the middle 60s. He gets a phone call at 1 a.m. at his apartment. He'd moved his mom in. And he tells his mother that he has to leave, that he needs to borrow her car. Bobby had a Corvette, but he wanted to borrow his mom's car. So he takes his mom's car. He said he'd be back in a little bit. Off he goes. He doesn't come back all night. 
She doesn't see him in the morning, doesn't see him in the afternoon. That evening, she hears the car pull into the garage. So she's relieved. She hears the car, but no Bobby. So after about 20 minutes, she goes down into the garage, opens the door, and there's Bobby Fuller stretched out across the front seat of the car. He had been badly beaten. The left index finger on his left hand was broken. Uh, bruises on his chest. He was matted and doused in gasoline. Mm. And there was gasoline down his throat. Okay? Oh my. When Bob King comes to see the body, the Hollywood police show up. They take the gas can and throw it in a dumpster. They do not dust for fingerprints. They tell Bob King, well, Bobby Fuller's a rock and roller. He committed suicide. You cannot drink gasoline and not throw up. No. Not if you're living. So the gasoline had to be planted down his throat after he was killed. Now, there was an investigator hired by the family, and the investigator quit after someone shot at him and was breaking into his office. One of the other members of Bobby Fuller's band, the Bobby Fuller Four, was, was driven off the road, and Randy Fuller, Bobby's brother, moves back to Texas. So, you know, you talk about a rock and roll cold case. What I'll happened say. to Bobby Fuller? Wow. And, and the legend is that he was dating a girl who was also dating a major figure in organized crime. So Bobby Fuller, I guess you would say, love made a fool of him at the end, and he was murdered, mm. just like the song said. Wow. Is there a, uh, I've heard that there's some interesting connections between Bob Dylan and Buddy Holly. I, I know that Bob Dylan saw Buddy Holly perform, uh, I think, in Minneapolis, uh, just like, like two days before he died. It was part of that winter dance tour. Well, I know that Bob Dylan was very well influenced by Buddy Holly, you know, the, the whole music. And I don't know of any other strange things. I know that... Uh, we could take a conspiracy theory, you know, when Bob had his motorcycle accident. Uh, it seems like his political motive in his music changed greatly mm-hmm. and when he moved. But, you know, I've not heard anything other than Bob, you know, Bob Dylan saying how much he loved and respected the music of uh, Betty Holly and how he got a motorcycle because James Dean had one. You know, so he was influenced by a lot of the 50s, you know, the music direction that was going. And, of course, he, he brought a whole new sound out that changed the world himself. Wow. Um, now, I th- there's, a, there's also a rumor that Bob Dylan um, played piano for Bobby V. Uh, he was using his pseudonym, Bob Dylan occasionally will use the pseudonym Elston Gunn, and he may have played mm-hmm. piano that night uh, um, when Bobby V was uh, on stage, who was like 15 at the time or something. But, um, well, you know, Bobby V's big break came because they needed artists fill up the dance party tour. So Bobby V goes on stage, and he performs that night, and that's what launched his career. Even did an album, Bobby V meets the crickets. So, you know, that could be very well be true that Dylan had performed with him, because it was sort of like a makeshift band to make up for the death of three headliners. There you go. All right, we'll come back. We'll get to Mark in Cambridge and others waiting on the line. Our Gary Patterson, the rock and roll investigator, here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Here am I, will you left me here so I could sit and cry? Well, golly gee, what have you done to me? Well, I guess it doesn't matter anymore. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. 
Let's go right back to the phones as we discuss the death of Buddy Holly. Mark is in Cambridge, Ontario. Mark, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yeah, hi. I was wondering, because um, I've got to say first, I got brain damage, so sometimes I have a hard time hauling out words. So if you can fill it in for me, <laughs> go ahead. But uh, Buddy Holly, uh, you guys, when you, when you start playing his, his song there uh, in between on one of the commercials, I was thinking to myself, because I'm, I'm young, I'm only 41, but uh, my mom would be a fan type thing. But um, I'm listening to his voice, and I'm thinking... God, he could bellow out some, you know, uh, hillbilly music. I, you know, like, and I'm into Metallica and Twisted Sister and stuff like that. But uh, he's got a, a very sharp, unique voice, you know. And I'm thinking that. And then you guys came back on and said that he had played uh, country music, but then he was impressed by Elvis dealing with the girls. And it's like, did he record any of his country music? Because I used to like when I was a kid, used to like listening to those old little suitcase record players where. Uh, the guy from, I think it was uh, Greengrass or that old comedy show with the girl. Green Acres. Green Acres. Green Acres, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to listen to some of that guy's uh, records uh, at my grandma's house. And uh, I kind of like, you know, hearing the banjo and that, especially in rock music. But did Buddy Holly ever record any of his country music or anything? Not successfully. I mean, Owen Bradley uh, did a version of That'll Be the Day that was pretty country influenced. But. When I think about country music, I think more about rockability. It had a little bit more of an edge to it. You know, you had Bob Wills, and you had all this other stuff that was a uh, direction. But, but Elvis moved him forward to the rock and roll genre because of watching the girls' response. Matter of fact, Peggy Sue was there at that concert too, and she talks about that. So, you know, that's kind of interesting. But I don't think he would have. We'll look at the Big Bopper. Okay, the Big Bopper. Everybody knows Chantilly Lace, but did you know the Big Bopper wrote White Lightning? That George Jones thing? I didn't oh, know that. 40. Like, I don't even know who the Big Bopper is. Like, I know, like I, like I said, my, my favorite band growing up was that uh, Twisted Sister. Right? Mm-hmm. And I know that they have a tendency, kind of like Joan Jett, where they stick to the old uh, mm-hmm. real rock and roll, is what we call it, like the 50s and all that. But, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm what, I, what I call the perfect fan. I only want to know what, what the rock star is coming up with a new album. I don't care about his family or anything like that. Right. I mean, I even had my picture in the newspaper for a birthday my kids put in where I'm dressed up in stud and face paint carrying a banjo around. <laughs> and uh, I don't play music. I don't sing music. I'm just a big fake. Just a big, a big fan, Mark, and we appreciate hearing from you. Uh, that's a good I, I mean, is there, is, there, is there a possibility, Gary, that there's still Buddy Holly songs that are lying in a, in a, recorded on an Ampex in his apartment somewhere that are uh, in, a, in a suitcase under somebody's bed or in a closet somewhere we don't know about? Well, not that I'm aware of, but, you know, you never say never in this business. You know, then if the song comes out, it's going to have to be verified, which would be pretty hard. But, you know, I've not heard of anything that might be out there. That, you know, I mean, look at the recording back then. You didn't have cassette recorders. You couldn't do anything. You know, you'd have to really bring in a reel-to-reel to record any show. So I'm not going to say never. So we'll just have to wait and see. All right. Keith is in Rochester. Keith, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. You're on the line with Gary Patterson. I wanted to ask very quickly, Eddie Cochran sang the song Three Stars, and then he himself Mm -hmm. died in April 1960 in an automobile accident in London. And I was wondering if your uh, guest had a comment on that. Eddie Cochran passed just a year later. Yeah, well, Eddie Cochran was Buddy Holly's best friend. And they played together. And let me tell you the story. Eddie Cochran was scheduled to be on that dance party tour. 
but he had to do a, a I think it was the Ed Sullivan show or he was finishing a movie, so he canceled out. But if you've ever seen the movie Final Destination, Eddie Cochran was convinced that if he was there, he would have been on that plane. So mm. he felt like he cheated death. Yeah, for a so, short while only. Yeah, and what happened was is that uh, you know he actually did the song Three Stars, and his voice breaks out, and he starts to, to really cry. And he tells the producer, if you release this song, I'll never do another one. So he goes to England. He buys Buddy Holly records. He listens to him. He tells his girlfriend that he knows he's going to be seeing Buddy soon. He even went to a fortune teller to find out how much longer he had to live. He wakes up in his hotel screaming, I'm going to die, and there's not anything I can do about it. Oh, my. He died in April of 1960. My. Keith in Rochester, thank you for that great story, Gary, as always. Uh, Stephanie uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, we'll make you the last call for the evening. Thanks for checking in. Good morning. Oh, hey. We, my husband and I are a big AM740 fans. We love it and um, love your show. I'll tell you, um, the, Buddy did, not my husband, um, first of all, my husband and a good friend of ours have been to all, uh, it'll be the 33rd, um, Buddy Holly tribute concert in Clear Lake, Iowa at the Surf. Right. The Surf is still there. It's it's not it's the same as it was in 1959. I've been to a lot of them, including mm-hmm. the very first one they had uh, 20th anniversary. But uh, my husband um, the, he's done a lot of Buddy Holly. He and his friend have done a lot of Buddy Holly specials. We have a um, a radio station. It's a community um, community excellent community radio station. Buddy um, Buddy and Bob. That was Buddy's first recording um, with his friend Bob Montgomery, and they did mm-hmm. do a lot of country music. And right. so, yeah, if you want to really want to check that out, there are recordings. Um, there's box sets. There's a lot of um, a lot of stuff out there. And so, just wanted to share that. Well, thank you, you Stephanie. Bob's Buddy Mobile. Hey, I'm um, pardon me. Around him. Have you seen Bob's Buddy Mobile? No, I have around. not. Mm-mm. Yeah, you need to see that. And you're oh, right. I'd love to. Listen, um, there is just so much neat stuff out there. And, mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, there's something I also want to mention about, about music. Um, my personal feeling is I know people refer to this as the day the music died, and it's kind of like a, a, a real a shorthand to just refer to the whole thing of the plane crash. Um, my husband, is he's four and, well, almost four and a half years older than me, um, and he was a freshman in high school when this, no, eighth grade, I'm sorry, when the plane crash happened. He said people, the kids were just, everyone was just so devastated um, after this happened. But the music didn't die, you know. I mean, it really didn't. It, it, it was just a horrible, sad event. And, um, you know, it just so tragic because these guys were so talented. Well, Stephanie, but, you're right. I mean, the, the music lived on. What, what, you, what you're left with, though, is thinking about, the, the possibility of what could have happened afterwards. It's the same with, uh, with Lennon and, and, when, and when he died. I mean, we oh, were yeah. just robbed of so, oh, ma- so many more m- years of great music and always, of course, that potential hovering out there that the Beatles could have reunited, maybe made new music. We were robbed. We were robbed on Feb 3rd, yep. 1959, yep. and uh, on and on it goes. Stephanie? Tragic loss. Thank you for the call. Thank you. And uh, Gary, wow. Uh, another <laughs> evening has come and gone, and... Um, what a, a, a fun time and a pleasure, as always, speaking with you. Well, it's always fun, Richard. And next time I'll have to tell you the new rumor of the plane, of the uh, coin toss because there's something new out there. And I should say that they did find the gun under the plane, 
and the farmer who found the gun had admitted that he had fired it. So ah, you know, that sort of goes out the window. There you I go. need to break all the great legends. Though. <laughs> That's what we have you here to, uh, you know, to separate right. the wheat from the chaff. Uh, very quickly, Gary, what's coming up uh, uh, with you? I know you're, you've got this new project trying to, uh, to get, um, uh, you know, some residuals, uh, uh, music uh, fees to the, the rightful uh, artists and so forth. Uh, any yeah. new books or other projects coming down the pipe? Well, still working on a book. I've been working on a television thing for a while, and there's some showrunners in, in L.A. who've got one that I think is going to be rather unique. And so we're working on that, still putting some other chapters together. I, I'm trying to update it, but it takes it takes a while to be a legend. I mean, we have legendary bands, but, you know, you have to take a look at it. And, uh, you know, it takes a while to be a Buddy Holly or a Beatle, you know. But uh, I've got some interesting stories coming up with that, and uh, I'm, I just love to have a good time. And uh, if you'd like to listen to www.popodysseyradio.com on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we have some interesting people there. And, and if you would like to call in and say hello to Piggy Sue on Thursday night, she'll be there. Excellent. Well, I'm, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be listening. To, it's always good being with you. Uh, and same, uh, same here, my friend. And uh, you know, we have the uh, the TV show in production, which uh, debuts across Canada Feb 18th. Uh, we just about put the first the first thirteen episodes to bed, but the next thirteen, one of the the the, uh, the episodes I want to do is the whole Elvis uh, did he fake his death? So I'm going to make a trip down to your neck of the woods, and uh, you and I are going to sit down on camera and discuss this. Oh, it'll be fun, and we may sit down at Bill Street for a while too. That would be great. Looking forward to that. <laughs> <It'd be fabulous. laughs> All right, Gary. Thank you, my friend. Uh, thank you. Our Gary Patterson, and uh, that is it for another evening. Back uh, next week, we'll uh, speak with Ali Siadatan, a filmmaker, about RFID chips and how RFID chips might, in fact, connect with the Mark of the Beast, 666, and uh, lots of other good stuff coming your way. Don't forget, The Conspiracy Show on TV debuts Friday, Feb 18th on Vision TV, 11 p.m., two back-to-back half hours, so 11 till midnight. Thanks for all uh, who attended my CD signing for Strange Planet Volume 2 at Conspiracy Culture. And, of course, always thank you to Patrick and Kadena. Thank you, Dan Ellison, for production. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.